Okay, we'll see what I've got here. We'll see how long this voice lasts today. See how long you guys can put up with this. Now you might wonder why I wasn't singing. I probably have given it away by now. He's a Christian He's a snot. Sorry. I won't repeat that. I only have so much voice anyway, right? So I might be a little limited today. I might only go an hour. I was Maybe I can get 40 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe. Oh, no. You don't want that. Okay, get this cough out of my system and we'll get ready to roll here. Sorry you have to listen to this, but if you would have had, if you would have heard me sing earlier, these guys here, I said, well, let me give it a try, and I put, came out with one note, and it sounded like a bullfrog. Oh boy. Anyway, I'm glad that uh, you guys are here, and uh, we're able to make it in His strength, aren't we? And um, you know, you think of the uh, Good Samaritan. A Good Samaritan story. Everybody is familiar with that, aren't they? Not only you guys, but I think a lot of people who don't even know anything about the Bible have heard something about the Good Samaritan. May not be able to tell you much about it, or maybe they could, but it's very familiar to most people. Um, and we happen to get it right in the context of where we have been and kind of where we're going here. Uh, as we look at it today, you'll see where it was put into place and it really starts coming together once we see that. Uh, just taken by itself, uh, it, it's a nice story, but it has to be taken in with a greater context. And of course, we've, we're in Luke 10 and we talked about joy uh, last week, didn't we? The joy of the Lord was that He rejoiced. You know, Christ rejoices. And that is really good to think about. He rejoices mostly whenever people come to Him. Whenever He draws them to Him and they come to Christ and they yield their lives to Him, that is His greatest joy. Well, I don't know if I can say greatest, but that's a super joy, isn't it? And well, it is for us too when we see people come to Christ. Well, He rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit whenever he was telling um, the people there that uh, actually he was praising God and he said, I praise you to your Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Now what has happened is he sent out the 70 messengers Remember those guys? They're kind of separate from the uh, the apostles. He sent them out. Now he's got the 70 who sent out. They came back and they were rejoicing because demons had been cast out of people. And that is a rejoicing thing. But Jesus said there's something even much more rejoicing than that. And it is whenever one is uh, saved, when salvation happens, and so this is the context of where this is at. Um, that he 
hid certain things from people and reveal them to others. Has he said that to, to God the Father in, in his prayer there? So in the story of the Good Samaritan, you have the scholars, you have like the lawyers, let's say, and in this case it's a lawyer. That would be the wise and the intelligent, right? And, of course, he said, Lord, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, these spiritual things, these things of the gospel. They're hidden from them, but yet the Samaritan is not really a scholar at all. He would be considered kind of an enemy of the Jews. And there's a great difference between the Samaritans and the Jews, but there's great difference in this story between this one Samaritan and the ones who would be the religious people, the priests and the uh, Levites, uh, the Samaritan is considered to be the good Samaritan. He would be good, and then that would leave who? The intelligent and the wise, or in this case, the religious elite, and they wouldn't be good, right? So that's seeing the difference there. The Samaritan helps us see the, the difference. So uh, we will see one of these wise and intelligent who is coming to Jesus to ask a question. So that's where we get in with this. We're going to be in Luke 10, verse 17. My introduction is going to be held way down there. And we're going right into the verse now. It's still yet I had had like five minutes of an introduction. I said, I'm going to make that about a minute. Boy. So we, we pick it up in verse 7, or uh, not 17, but we pick it up at verse 25. 17 through 24 was the joy of the Lord there, and He had hidden these things. And right immediately after that, and a lawyer stood up, put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And we'll get into that part in in a moment, but we'll first start with this. He has a question. There's really two questions in this section. The first question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Sounds legitimate. Sounds like he's on the right track. That's what you want people to ask, isn't it? Is that not one of the most important questions in the world that anybody could ask? It's like, you know, um, how do I enter the kingdom? How can I stand innocent and right before holy God? How How do I know I can have eternal life? So here you have this man coming up to Jesus, and he's a lawyer. First thing you think about whenever it's a lawyer, you're thinking of somebody who goes to the courthouse, and he has a defendant. And so he's hired to try to show that the man that he is working for is innocent, right? So we think of the guy who goes to court. And in this case here, 
this is not the way to think of this man. He's a lawyer in that he is an expert in the law. He interprets the law, the Pentateuch, the first five books. That's really what he's about. So he's not one of the professional lawyers that defends people, but he's an expert in the interpretation of the Torah. And by the way, the word lawyer really is not used frequently in the Bible. You'd think so, but not really. We find it only in the Gospels, in your Luke 10 here, in Matthew 22:35, And it would be what I just told you what a, what a lawyer is. So here he is, coming up, and he puts Jesus to the test. And so it's not like he's asking legitimately, I really want to know about this eternal life. No, he's putting Jesus to the test. He's a lawyer. He's an expert in the law. So, ask the question. This is assuming here that there is something that he can do to get eternal life. To do something. You know, there's there's grace or there's works-based salvation. You've got to do something to get it. So it puts Jesus to the test. That means it looks like he's appearing to be a seeker. But you see here that that's not the case. He's really saying, what is the essence of your teaching? This eternal life. He's using Jesus' terminology here. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to get that? To get eternal life? To get salvation? And (coughs) he wants to compare what Jesus is saying versus what he thinks it says in the law and what it is to do. That's the bottom line. The bottom line of Judaism is that they have a system and it's right. And it's all works-based. Now, the law we know is there to condemn everybody. They are sinners and it shows that they can't follow the law, right? Well, that's his problem. He doesn't think that. His system here is about uh, what he has already done in his life. Now, there was a, um, another case where there was a rich young ruler in the Gospel of Matthew. You know, he says, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? So it's not like Jesus is going to give them a, a series of different events, of things that they can do. It's basically saying, what, what one good thing must I really do to get that? Uh, <clears throat> look at Luke 18, 18. It's your, it's your, A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Right there, they saw him as a rabbi, a teacher. But is he really God? I don't think they're seeing him as God. He's something special to this rich young ruler. Anyway... In this case, Jesus says, you know the commandments. You know, he gives a few of them. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal and such. Um, So what it is, there again, it's about following the Ten Commandments. But is Jesus really saying that? That's how you get salvation. We know that we can follow the Ten Commandments, or think we can. But all it's going to do is show 
that we need God and His grace alone because we can't please God by doing these. And so that's where He uh, He takes Him to. That's where Jesus is getting at in this. So um, well, in Acts 2.37, Peter at Pentecost gives a riveting sermon to them. He said, well, they heard all of this. They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Of course, here are some things to do. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We know that repentance is necessary. Faith is necessary. The baptism is being put into the uh, uh, into Christ. But it's also showing, obediently when we do that, what has happened to us. We've been transferred into the kingdom. But, you know, he's saying, repent. Be baptized. There was, they were saying, what shall we do? Let's believe. Repent. Do what he says, right? That's the promise. So that's, that's simple. There was a Philippian jailer in Acts 16.30. And you remember the jailer is has just thought he's lost all of his people that he had been, you know, at, he's got to watch the ones that are in jail. And if they get out, what happens to him? He gets terminated because he lost his prisoners. And But he's realized something has happened here. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You shall be saved. It's really a belief, having a faith in Him. As a result of that, you will then do those things that God shows that are holy. It is the law. But it's the law that's put in by Him, and we ourselves cannot do it. So, Jesus wants to get this man to where He needs to see this. So, he, he, you know, He's concerned about this. Does a man have the right motive in his question? Not at all. He's testing improper motives. He's not interested in eternal life, not the way that Jesus presents it. He prides himself as an expert. That's what he is. He knows the law. Who is Jesus anyway to him? He's nobody. Calls him teacher, yeah, right. But we know that Jesus is totally head and shoulders above him. But this man... You know, he's a theologian. He's a professor. He's going to give a test. He's going to test Jesus here. He wants to put Jesus on trial. And so he is determined to take Jesus down at least a notch or two, right? Coming from the um, religious elite, he's heresy hunting here. So we get into verse 26. Jesus says, What's written in the law? Jesus answers with a question. Does does not tell him, obviously, okay, here's what it is. He comes right back with the question. Well, the man knows this, doesn't he? You know, he's an expert in the law. So Jesus often answers that. What he wants to do is get to the heart and get to our hearts. Jesus is really after what we need to really hear from him. So he gets the attention from us, our own own hearts. Um, he says, let me tell you where you're going to get the answer at. Where's it at? In the Bible. And the man should know the Bible. 
And so him being the expert, Jesus says, uh, what does the law say? You know what? Very simple. You're the expert. You tell me. <laughs> in, the, in the vernacular, it's given that kind of thought. But what does the law say? You tell me. You know what? So he points to the law. And the Old Testament is the very strength. It is the very root, the foundation of our New Testament, isn't it? And so it's good to go back to the Old Testament. Of course, that's all they had at the time. This man knew it. At least he thought he did. Um, Jesus, whenever he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, he says quite often, You have heard it said, but I say to you, right? One of them was the fact of, um, of course, you know, you love your neighbor, but hate your enemies. That's what the Jews taught. Hate your enemies. But Jesus says, love your enemies. You've heard it say to hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies. So this is what the law really means. So what's written in the law, Jesus says. The lawyer comes back. He answers it. And he gives a twofold answer. It's really the sum, uh, summation of the old, uh, or the first part of the law, uh, Ten Commandments. First table, you can call it. And then the second table. First table is about loving God. The second table is about loving others. And so he does. That's what he says anyway. And so if he knows the Old Testament, he knows the Bible. That's what he says. Okay, I'm going to sum it up. Here's what it is. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer quotes two Old Testament passages there. First would be in Deuteronomy 6, five, six four and 5. It's the Shema. And this Shema, they would wear on their wrist or on their forehead. They'd have a phylactery. And they would have these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So he quotes from that. And so that would be where everything starts about loving God, right? But he does throw in and love your neighbor as yourself. And of course that's all a part of this here and in if you go to back to Leviticus in the law in Leviticus nineteen eighteen. Gets a little more specific here. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the lawyer knows this. Summed it up perfectly. He was correct. That is summed up just right on. Jesus is saying here. If you look in Leviticus, he's saying neighbor there. He says the sons of your people. Who would that be? That would be the Jews. And so he would agree with that. But if you go to verse 34... says, the stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you. 
And you shall love Him as yourself. For you are aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Uh-oh. Now he's teaching really the stranger. It's the Gentiles. Somebody other than a Jew. They didn't teach that at all in their law. Their law says to hate them. They're your enemies. So they did. And that's where this man is really... He's believing this. But there's the law right there. That's right in Leviticus. He should have known that. You shall love your neighbors and hate your enemies. Matthew 5.43 Jesus makes that clear in His Sermon on the Mount. That's not surprising to us as Christians, is it? But to them, it's quite foreign. Well, Jesus says you've answered correctly. Jesus retains His authority and with Him dealing Him almost like this man, even as great a position that He is, as being that lawyer. Jesus is really the authoritarian teacher here, really. Mm -hmm. Even though this man really thinks that he's still over Jesus on this. So he gives the summary. The two tables. And it's kind of like, you've answered correctly, and Jesus says, do this and you will live. Is that how we get salvation? Do these commandments here. Love God and love your neighbor. Do this and live. You can say, Jesus, you have perfect time to talk about grace and mercy and love and the wrath of God and all that, right? But he goes right to the heart of where this man really is. He did the same thing with the rich young ruler. What was it that kept the rich young ruler from really wanting eternal life? And I think his question was kind of legitimate. This man right here is not legitimate. He's testing, and then he'll come back and start trying to find a way um, of, you know, kind of twisting the law a little bit as he asks another question. So Jesus says, good answer. You got it. Now do it. (laughs) By the way, that do this and live, that's out of the Old Testament too. Do this and live. If you would attain to eternal life by the keeping of the law, then keep the law. But I do want to tell you something. If you mess up once, you're done. (laughs) Keep on doing it and live. Well, the law has to be followed perfectly. And Jesus attacks at this point here by just asking the man questions. And then he says, well, you've said it right. Um, The whole law has to be done perfectly. What what does it say here? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That's what the man just said. He quoted Scripture perfectly said it correctly the problem is <laughs> did he love God with all of those things well if he did I guess you could get eternal life if you did everything perfect and we know that nobody is anywhere near perfect right thank you Lord for your grace <laughs> go to Galatians 3.10 
course, the Galatians book really attacks a works-based salvation. Some of the people, well, many of them in the Galatian church were uh, turning back to that again. 3.10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Only Jesus was the perfect one. He is the only one that fulfilled the whole law. Sad to say, there most people are trying to do good things so that they too would have eternal life. But, of course, those things are good, and we are to do those, but there's only one reason why we can. And you have to know Christ first, right? Do this and live. Perfection. The law commands us to do what we cannot do. <laughs> so why would God do that? Gets our attention. Most people know about the Ten Commandments. Something about them. Most people that know it's not right to steal start breaking that down. Or murder or, or any of them. Right? Bearing false witness, lying, and so so forth. And all the time. I got a feeling this man is starting to have a little bit beads of sweat up here on his forehead. Well, what's he going to do here? Now, we know that Jesus is not teaching works of salvation, but he's addressed this man where he needed to be. How can I be saved? Jesus says, You tell me according to the law. And in seeking to condemn Jesus, the lawyer had just condemned himself. And by the way, all of us, the whole world. Because he just said it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting. So we go into the second question now. This guy's a lawyer. In the sense that he knows it. And he looks for a technicality here. Love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't start with God here. He comes back with the neighbor question. He already thinks he loves God. The neighbor thing kind of bothers him. How can I be saved? So now, who is my neighbor? Trying to justify himself. He's aware that he's lacking in the demands now. Wishing to justify himself. Do you catch that? He's trying to justify himself. Who is my neighbor? Now, that's interesting because um, he realizes that, that he falls short. That's where we all fall short, right? And that's exactly where Jesus wanted to take him. Jesus is not on his defensive here, is he? A lawyer tried to put Jesus on the defensive.
putting him to the test. It's the lawyer who now is on the spot. He now feels obligated to justify himself. So, ask the second question. Some people just never learn, do they? He's asked one, and boom, he comes up with this one. He's just got himself in a hole. He's never had this kind of match. Um, I think he looks at this technically, and he's trying to get, maybe use, by using the law, he can get an excuse here. Gets him off the hook. So he asks a theological question. It's pretty deep. Who's my neighbor? <laughs> Do you know the answer? Well, the Jew would say, one of my fellow Jews. One of God's people. That's who my neighbor is. They would never say an unbelieving Gentile, a pagan. It's not my neighbor. Um, would you say that this man is self-righteous? Trying to justify himself? By the way, uh, he seems more worried about the command to love his neighbor. Why didn't he start with God? Because that's where everything starts, right? They both are on... That's the royal law, to love God, to love your neighbor. Well, my idea on this is, why did he say love the neighbor? I would say, maybe it's just theory. But you know, it's really difficult to test one's love for God. You know, somebody might have... They have an inward view of God. And they have their relationship with him, but it's inwardly. When you deal with neighbors, you're talking about somebody who is real, you know, with a real physical life, and they're there before you. So it's difficult to test one's love for God outwardly. How do you assess one's attitudes before God, one's devotion? I know there are, are times when we can we can tell that, but uh, with this man, you really couldn't because he looked good outwardly. You can't measure that, can you, about the things of God. But if you want some way to measure your love for God, how do you show that you love Him? You love your neighbor. You love the enemies. You love the ones who don't have a draw to you. I mean, at the same time, knowing that I'm, I must love them, the unlovely, right? I must forgive those kind of things. And it's difficult to test the love for God, but one can test really by looking at how they love their neighbor. James says in 1 John that a man who professes that he has faith and yet doesn't show love for his neighbor is a man with false profession. They don't love the neighbor. And they're showing they really don't love God because they don't care what God says about that. That's where this man is at right here. He doesn't really care about all those other ones. It's really about himself. And so he knows his love for 
particular neighbors, Jesus is saying it this way, is deficient. It's not good enough. And so that's where it's at. That's why he's trying to justify this. We are told in Scripture that God loves the non-Israelite. Look in Deuteronomy 10.18. In the law, right? He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. There, he's talking about uh, an alien, a foreigner, is the idea. So not only the the widow and the orphan, and of course, a lot of the Jewish people, even though they were Jewish, they would look down upon the people who were the orphans, who were the widows. Um, Let's go to another one. Look at Leviticus 24-22. There shall be one standard for you. It shall be for the stranger as well as the native. For I am the Lord your God. What did he just say? One standard, one law. You love your own people, but you love the people who are the foreigners, or the Gentiles, or the pagans. Wow. How can people love people who are enemies? Oh, by the power of God. It's supernatural, isn't it? And that doesn't mean we condone the things that they do. But it does mean that we still are to love for them, to, to love them, and have a desire for their salvation. Because ultimately, that is the best love, isn't it? That they would have eternal life. So, that's the law's meaning. We've, and we could go other scriptures that I have here, Numbers and Deuteronomy, Leviticus. Uh, look at First Peter 4, we'll go to the New Testament for a moment. But the man should have known these things. He would. Remember, he's an expert in the law. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is one to do so. One who's speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one is serving. By the strength which God supplies, so that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory, dominion, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, the story of, of the Good Samaritan. I'm not going to really get into the very details at all. You've heard this story. You've heard... Messages on it, probably as the years have gone on. It is uh, one of the favorite parables. It is beautiful. Jesus doesn't give a one-shot answer here. What does he do? Gives him a story. Everybody likes stories. So he gives him one. The setting here of this story is real familiar. Um... You have Jericho, which is something like 600 feet below sea level. As you trek up the rocks and the cliffs and and that narrow road that goes up to Jerusalem, 
which is something like, uh, I think, 2,500 feet above sea level. So you're going like 3,100 feet just on the air. It's like 18 miles of that road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And boy, you know, either you're going up or you're going down, but it's quite just an 18 miles to go 3,100 you know, feet as far as... The, what is that? Perpendicular or uh, horizontal? No, that's not horizontal. Vertical. I'll tell you what, folks. <laughs> My mind really isn't too too sharp today. But I, well, I keep going. But anyway, you have this canyon road. And it's real... It's craggy. It's rocky. And you're traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the the man fell into desperate times because here come the robbers and well, and that's what it's known for and a lot of the roads were known for that um, the robbers come along beat him, they rob him they leave him for the dead so there he is he's not getting any medical attention and that means death would probably occur here so there were two who walked by you know the story you have the priest, and it's easy to be like that priest. There are times whenever it's not convenient. I know I need to do that, but I just can't do that. I've got to move on here. So, it's like the guy plays church on Sunday, and then he goes back down to Jericho, below sea level, for the rest of the week. And so that's what this, this guy's doing. This, this is the priest, the second man. It's a Levite. And he would be the one who would have the privileges to serve in the temple. and He'd be like deacons are. You know, they're always serving around. They get a lot of respect from people. He does a lot of things that, that would be in the church or here in the temple. And he just kind of walks on just like the priest did. Now these would be the men that would seem to be the most caring and they just moved on. They avoided him. They avoided his pain. They continued on their way. And I'm sure they're thinking, if I go there, there are probably robbers that are just waiting to pounce on me. I think I'll just kind of walk on. And, you know, probably a lot of good... Uh, careful things that they're thinking about. They're probably thinking, well, if I go and touch that man, I could be ceremonial unclean. Is that this man, you know, my neighbor is, but does that apply to this man here? You know? After all, who is my neighbor, right? So, you know, of course, this man that Jesus is speaking to probably would probably be asking that question. That's not part of the deal, though. (laughs) Uh, There was one who stopped, and there is no love loss between the Jews and the Samaritans. They hate each other. They are enemies. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. The, The Jews had gone in and burned the temple of the Samaritans. The Samaritans had come into the temple and defiled it and they constantly had derogatory remarks they made with each other. There was hatred. 
And here you get this man who has an activity of mercy who is a Samaritan. The Samaritans, by the way, you think, what's a Samaritan? It was, it was the people that were half-breeds. They would be considered to live like in a Galilee area. And whenever the Assyrians attacked the ten tribes, they were scattered everywhere. And a lot of them were there. They remarried uh, pagans, other Gentile nations. And so therefore you have the half-breeds. That's the Samaritans. They thought they had the right way. They, they had their own way of worshiping God that included some of the Pentateuch, but it's their own way. So here's this Samaritan though, and it's funny that Jesus would put this Samaritan in that case. His act of mercy is amazing here. You know, he, he could have said, poor fellow, I really feel for him, and, you know, I'd like to do something to make him feel better. But, I'll tell you what, hey, I'll pray for you and hope that things get better for you. So he moves on. That is not costly. But what happened is that he applied mercy. And this is where it becomes actual. And whenever he supplied that, it made a cost to him. His cost, as being a Samaritan, it cost him time. It cost him effort. It cost him supplies. And even his own money. Mercy is not mercy until it costs. Here is where we're getting at the point of the story. Was this man trying to meet some kind of a religious obligation? No. He did what he did because of compassion. And that's the idea. The compassion, the mercy. And mercy will cost you the universe because it did. You see, what God did with His Son is that He showed the perfect picture of mercy. What we're all deserving and yet He sent His Son. And... You know, when you, when you think about that, when you think about what God did in meeting our needs to be able to get into the kingdom of God, that's where we have the right attitude about loving God and then loving our neighbor. The Samaritan went even further than the meeting of the immediate need, didn't he? He looked ahead to see what uh, the stranger's long-term need could be. I mean, this guy almost died. He was at that point. He had to keep moving on, but he made sure he got to a place that would help him. Gave him money, anything else it cost. I'll be by and I'll pay for it. So, not just the then, but it was on into the future. Now we get to the point of the parable. Verse 36, which of, you, which of these three, the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan, right, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? That's what he asked the man. The lawyer, lawyer says, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. 
point of the parable, do you remember what this original question was that got us right into the Good Samaritan? Who's your neighbor, right? The lawyer had come face to face with the law and its command to love your neighbor as yourself. This brought up that question, who is my neighbor? He's staring right at it. Instead of answering the question, Jesus tells the story. And then he has a question of his own. Who proved to be a neighbor? Who acted neighborly here, right? Who did the neighborly thing? Of course, it was an obvious answer, wasn't it? As the man says. Um, The real question is, I guess you could say, uh, is whether you're going to act neighborly to all men. And that would be the question. How can we accomplish this kind of thing? How can we forgive the unforgivable? How can we love the one who hates, right? Well, when we first see that it is one who forgave us and gave us all this love that we have received all of our lives and right on into eternal life. When we see it that way, then that's our motive. It's really geared to Christ because He's the only one that can do these things. Because later on He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, right? It is Christ. You have to eat of Me, He says. So you see, the story of the Good Samaritan is the story of Jesus. Even though it's focusing on the Samaritan, the enemy of them, Jesus was an enemy too of these religious leaders. He's the one who has come and rescued us at personal cost. It cost him something, didn't it? It cost the Father. It cost the Father his Son. So he's the Savior who saves and he calls us then to go and take the message to the world. He calls us to show mercy. You know what? We show we have eternal life by having love for God and people don't see that. But they see that we have love that we demonstrate towards others. Of course, it starts you know, in your family. It starts in the church, you know, the local church. When we have that, isn't it a beautiful thing? It's a great thing. You know, we, we, we serve each other. And we serve. We get served. Our inward love of God is seen outwardly. Seen outwardly. When we meet together and then serve not only the people in the church, but also outside the church. Trying to meet their needs. Showing mercy. And that would be what the man says. The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Could he do it? That's the way the story ends. I don't know. It doesn't say anymore, does it? I would like to think that he did. But he has to trust Christ as his Savior. That's the whole point. And that's the only reason we can love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. Thank you guys for putting up with my voice this morning. I think it's about done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who empowers us to live this kind of life. Thank you that we 
Don't have to be perfect to get into the kingdom because none of us would make it. Thank you for the person of Christ with all of His perfection and His mercy and love, forgiveness, His grace. And Lord, that's what we fall back on every time. Thank you so much for that. In Jesus' name, amen.